0: Hey everybody. Welcome to Finding My Freedom, January 2021, where the theme of this month is mobility and stability. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm going to share my screen and start the slides. Just a friendly reminder, you don't have to watch this video. You can listen to it while you do other things. Um, and you can listen to the video as it plays. Um, or if you are or you also have the ability to listen to just the audio, right? Which is available in and of itself, just the audio recording without the video, just in case that's easier for your bandwidth or your cellular data or your data plan or whatever it is. Um, So here we go. All right, here I am getting set up. Perfect. Finding my freedom, January 2021. So I figured that I would start because it's been a year since we met last, since moving into freedom began. Oh my goodness. Like I cannot even believe that it has been a year. What a year it was. Holy moly. And so I figured that um, we could start with a little bit of a hybrid review of the central theme of the entire course, which is ultimately resilience. Uh, Improving resilience ultimately supports in healing from complex trauma or healing from the after effects of complex trauma and moving into a life that feels much more free, full of choice and agency, happiness, peace, contentment great connection, all the things that we all want. So uh, in the theme of resilience, one of the um, nuanced elements of that theme is stability and mobility. And so that's what I'll define here in this lesson video, if you will. And perhaps at some point we can all together find a different word for um, this kind of video. Maybe lesson works and maybe we find a different word in the future, but for now I'll use the word lesson. So I'd like to start by defining terms, okay? And I'm gonna define four terms, two terms first in order to even talk about stability and mobility. So here we go flexibility is really in exercise science terms or in physics terms, the question of how far can I go? How far can I go? How far can I bend? Where the other side of that coin is strength. And strength is ultimately the question of how much force can I resist? How much strength do I have means how much force can I resist pressing on something or if, if it's me that's doing the resisting, how much force can I resist that's pressing on me? Uh, so these two concepts, these two terms are both in service of mobility and stability, whereas stability is ultimately a question of how do I return to baseline? And there's another part of this too, which is if I return to baseline, that implies that the next time I need to respond, I'm starting from baseline. So How do I return to baseline means at the end, it implies the end of something, but it also by, defi- by definition implies the starting point of whatever happens next. Whereas, Mobility is ultimately the question of how do I start and how do I end? So it has this implication of movement. How do I initiate something, something, and then how do I complete that something? How do I move through or mobilize through the whatever, the movement, the event? Um, And stability and mobility, just like flexibility and strength are sort of opposite sides of the same coin. Flexibility, how far can I go, right? How far can I move? Strength is how much force can I resist? Whereas stability is where do I start from and where do I end? But the other side of that same coin is how can I move through the thing starting from baseline and then returning to baseline after the the whole thing, the whole movement, the whole event is done. Right. So last year we talked about the concept of resilience and this slide is straight out of the Moving Into Freedom course material. So this is a slide that's uh, that's a graph all about resilience. So for those of you that are listening, I'm just gonna um, describe it. So it's a graph and it has two axes and one axis is arousal or activation of nervous system. And the other axis is time. So ultimately, this graph implies that resilience is a function of nervous system activation over time. And there's five phases to resilience. And this all relates back to mobility and stability. So when something is resilient, so we can say like, so we're talking about exercise science or physics or biomechanics, right? So let's just take, um, let's take Getting up out of your chair as an example to use in this example of resilience, getting up out of your chair means in order to respond and actually do the movement of getting up out of your chair, you have to phase number one, start from a baseline, right? You're just hanging out, sitting in your chair. None of your muscles, we're going to keep it simple. None of your muscles are particularly activated. But when you decide that you want to get up out of your chair, which is doing an action, Starting from baseline, you have to be able to, phase two, initiate the response or start the action itself of getting up out of your chair. And there's multiple steps um, in doing that, but we'll just sort of lump them all into initiating the response. And then phase number three is actually doing the action of getting up out of your chair, out of the chair. So you have to start from relaxed, then you have to initiate the getting up out of your chair, then you have to get up out of your chair, right? That's the highest level of action or the highest level of activity or activation in this whole resilient response. But once you've actually done the getting up out of your chair, the action itself Then phase four, you let that whole movement go. You start to return back to this phase five starting baseline where your nervous system is able to and your musculoskeletal system in this case too, but the musculoskeletal system or your body and your nervous system are very, very, very much intertwined and married in how they both function together. Um, But once you've actually gotten up out of your chair, then you have to complete the getting up out of your chair. It seems so silly to even talk about it in this way because obviously once you've gotten up out of your chair, that action has now been complete, right? Like you don't walk around, quote unquote, consistently getting up out of your chair. Once you're out of your chair, it's done. You can't just continue to get up out of your chair. But if we break it down in this very specific phased way, Then the implication is once we're out of our chair, we're no longer getting up out of the chair. It's already happened. That action is finished. And now we can do whatever is next. Probably if we've gotten up out of our chair and we are now standing, it means we can move from the chair or walk over to wherever it is that we're going next. Yeah. So now walking starts. And that's a whole other response arc. So this slide this resilience slide phases 1 through 5 is shaped like an arc. Right? It has a baseline beginning and then it it gets it moves up in space like a curve. There's higher activation but then once it reaches a peak, once the curve reaches a peak, then it drops down to the other side like a bell curve if you will, like an arc. And this is ultimately what we call the response arc. So last year in the course, I gave the example of a firehouse as an example of resilience, right? In the same way, I just gave an example of getting up out of a chair, but perhaps as a little more complex system way to think about this same concept. So um, firefighters, when they're on duty, they have to sort of be at the firehouse or be very nearby, right? But like on call, on standby. And when they're not responding to a fire, they're sort of um, resting in this baseline state. They're not actively fighting fires. They're just waiting in case they need to go fight a fire. So we can call this resting baseline state, sort of a relaxed readiness. And arguably, I don't know any firefighters personally, but I imagine that when they're sort of in this on-call relaxed readiness, they can do whatever it is that they want in service of this relaxed activation. So they might be sleeping. They might be making or eating food. They might be doing exercise or working out. They might be just chatting with each other, perhaps chatting on the phone to people that they love and care about. They might be reading books, right? Sort of like any experience, any embodied experience of relaxed readiness. It's very different than a hypervigilance, right? When they're like, oh my gosh, is there going to be fire? Oh my gosh, is there going to be fire? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And it's also very different than Um, like a a frozen readiness, which is really not a readiness at all, right, which is um, like not able to respond when the bell rings. It has to be this relaxed readiness such that when the bell rings, they have the ability to initiate the response, right, to drop whatever it is that they're doing hop into their gear, hop onto the fire truck, right? This is all part of the initiation, the rising of the, of the arc or the rising of the resilient or response arc, and then drive over to the fire, right? That's all part of this increase in activation of the response itself, such that then they can get to the fire and fight the fire. Everything is in service of this response, fighting the fire. But they have to get the gear and get over there, get the hoses ready, connect to the water. This is all part of the initiation of the response so that, boom, the water can hit the fire and the fire can be put out. But once the fire is put out, then they have to complete the response, pack up all the hoses, get all the gear into the truck, drive back to the firehouse, from the fire right and and the whole system of activation is really sort of starting to come to completion wind down once they get back to the firehouse park the truck take off their gear do whatever rituals are involved with bringing the response to completion maybe taking showers maybe having a bite maybe debriefing i'm not sure such that the whole response can come to full completion. And then they can return back to this baseline state of relaxed readiness, able to respond the next time there needs to be a resilience arc or a response arc, but being able to sort of let it go when they're not fighting a fire, they're not fighting a fire. Yeah. So what this really comes back to, or what I hope that these examples demonstrate is that resilience implies the ability to respond. Resilience is often sort of um, described in a lot of um, psychological or social science um, literature, uh, or even in common, common colloquialism as the ability to bounce back, right? Like how easy it, how easy is it for you to bounce back from adversity? And I feel like that's absolutely part of the picture. It's a very important part of the picture, the ability to bounce back, but it sort of um, leaves out a whole lot of the rest of the experience of resilience or the, the parts of the resilient um, response, which is that you have to start from baseline in order to Initiate a response from. And then you have to be able to do the response itself. And then once the response is through, then the question is, how easy is it for you to bounce back? And what that means is, right, because it's like, where are you bouncing back from? And where are you bouncing back to? Um, what does this mean bouncing? But really, like, can you return back to this resting, ready, peaceful, but able to initiate another response when the time is right, that kind of baseline. Resilience is the ability to respond. Yeah, so coming back to this idea of mobility and stability. Whoops. Stability meaning how do I return to baseline and mobility being how do I start and end a response? We can say, that resilience is mobility and stability, right? That they're sort of one and the same, that mobility and stability are the ability, your ability combined, combined ability to respond in your body or in an embodied way. So another way to say this is mobility and stability are factors and functions of your embodied resilience, there's different kinds of resiliencies, resiliencies. I'm gonna make up that word if that's not quite the grammatical conjugation of plural resilience, resiliencies. Resilience in your body. How can I start from baseline in my body such that I have a place to initiate movement from such that I can do an action that I wanna do. And then I can complete that action and return back to this state of sort of like relaxation, relaxed readiness to do my next action, my next movement in my body. But what's interesting, what's interesting, and this is where I think it gets so cool as as a very brief summation of all the things that we talked about last year. What's really cool is that there is a connection between brain and body or body and nervous system or brain, body and nervous system, sort of however you wanna define the terms. Neuroscience science, and neuroscience has proved this. It is a neurophysiological fact that body and brain are connected, which means that embodied resilience actually can influence relational resilience or the ability to respond, to be relaxed, to respond, interact with, and then come down from interactions with other people. Right, because those processes, those complex relational processes, the process of interacting with somebody else and negotiating their needs and your needs is a process that is highly complex and involves multiple structures in the brain, as we talked about last year, and as you might know from your own research. But if body and brain are connected then they can influence each other. They're reflections of each other and they can influence each other. So we can say how resilient you are in your body, how able you are to experience a baseline and to initiate a response and then return back to that baseline is a direct reflection of your ability to do the same kind of interacting with other people or with yourself. Emotional resilience, relational resilience, emotional resilience. Interacting with self, interacting with other people. We can even make this bigger. Interacting with the natural world, interacting with um, the systems of society, right? Self and world. But self has its own inner world, so inner world and outer world. how resilient or how able you are to respond in your body or in a physical way is a direct reflection of these other kinds of social and emotional abilities to respond and interact with and vice versa. Typically, typically, right? Because body and brain, body and nervous system are all elements of your whole self, your whole self and your whole system, which really is a very complex, holistic system. It's just, it's all one thing, it's all one thing. We can look at the whole thing, the whole system through tiny little microcosms or little lenses. Um, What's interesting is that neuroscience and psychology define unhealed trauma as a function of compromised responses to situations. So this slide says unhealed trauma changes perception and therefore it changes responses to situations. Unhealed trauma is a problem of responsiveness, of resilience, compromised resilience. And because of the connection between body and brain or body and nervous system or body, brain and nervous system, and that each part reflects the other and can influence the other because each part is one part of the whole system. So we can influence the whole system through each part, just as we can know the whole system by looking at one part. We can also influence the whole system by influencing one part. We can say that embodied resilience or improving embodied resilience can actually improve relational emotional resilience. Improving your ability to respond in your own body can influence your ability to respond with the entire world, with your inner world and with the outer world. This is called a bottom-up process. Um, Bottom-up meaning we think of body as closer to the ground, like literally hierarchical. We think of body as closer to the ground and we think of head as um, closer to the sky, right? That's just a physical orientation. We often uh, also in our society put a lot more, Value in our brain—it's very complex and mysterious, and we think it's—you know—it's—and it is. The, the brain has a has a very complex, very advanced, very complex ability to function and to manage our body, right? So it's kind of the manager. So we say it's like the CEO, and therefore it it makes more money in the company, right? It's more valuable in the company than sort of like the um, the workers that are just on the on the line. So we say that head is top, if you will, top, and body is bottom. So when body influences mind or brain, we call this a bottom-up process versus top-down. So here's the deal, right? If any of the parts can influence the whole, and what we're really ultimately interested in is is influencing and healing the painful effects, the painful social effects, social and emotional effects of complex trauma, then why don't we just go to the source? If the brain is where all these like very complex um, interactions with other people and with ourselves, our sense of self, and, and even our brain is even where we process our experience of pain in our body then why don't we just go right to the source, right to the brain and influence brain there in order to influence the way that we experience our own inner worlds and interact with the external world. For sure, that is an important piece to the puzzle, but it is much more difficult to influence what's going on in your brain than it is to influence What's going on in your body? Body is really tangible. You can really know for sure if your arm is moving Then, if you're experiencing an unconscious or subconscious neural process in your brain. Whether you're having a memory, the knowing of your memory is very different than what is the impact of perhaps this memory on my body. What is my body feeling right now? Is my heart racing? I can feel my heart race. Is my heart slowing down? I can feel my heart slowing down. It's much, much easier to work with the body than it is to work with. Brain, emotions, memories, perceptions. Anybody who's ever been in psychotherapy knows (laughs) that the process takes a while. It's not that it's Feudal is so important. There's been a whole lot of research that talks about the efficacy, how it's much more um, um, effective and faster to work both top down and bottom up together, right? To work from a psychological level and from an embodied perspective together. I'm not a psychotherapist, so that's not what I do. I provide this other piece, the the bottom-up approach, the body-centered approach. Because I find so much can be done just with bottom-up if you choose to use it with any other modality that you're also using. So whether it's psychotherapy or physical therapy or art therapy or whatever it is, right? Whatever sings to you and really seems to resonate and support you in making sustained change. Great, great, great. Um, But working bottom up or from um, body to whole being, that's my forte and so that's, that's what I talk about and that's what I'll talk about here. So why is this important? Well, drama, influences your ability to respond. Another way to say this is trauma disconnects or cuts off your brain from your body, cuts it off. There was once a connection there that is no longer there. And here are the common influences. Here are the common after effects of complex developmental and relational trauma. I'm gonna read off all the things that are on this slide. Common, Um, chronic pain, chronic or recurrent illness, trouble in situations involving your body, trouble connecting in relationships, compromised sense of self, trouble staying present and calm, trouble getting motivated and following through, trouble connecting to someone bigger and benevolent, Um, something bigger and benevolent that could mean different things to different people. Yeah, so um, for some people, it's God. For some people, it's nature. For some people, it's just connection to the universe. Whatever it is, something that is sort of bigger than self, but it, that is also inherently benevolent. And lastly, trouble with unequal power dynamics or systems, injustice. These are the common after effects of complex relational and developmental trauma. These things are painful, but they can change. These things can be healed. They really can. Neuroscience has proved it actually. Modern neuroscience has proved that healing trauma, the process of healing trauma integrates sensation, perception, and memories, creating freedom and choice in responses to situations integrating sensation, perception, and memories, right? So essentially brain, body, and nervous system, sensation, perception, and memories, reconnecting what has been disconnected by the trauma, what has been cut off so that you have more resilience, freedom and choice in response to situations. Let's go back really quickly to this first slide defining flexibility, strength, stability, and mobility. So if what we're ultimately going for is increased resilience and we can use our body, what happens in our body to inform what happens in the more complex relation of our entire self with ourself and our entire self with our external world, then we're going to use for focusing just on body our experience of flexibility and strength in order to inform how, how or whether we are able to start from baseline, initiate a response, do the response, complete the response and return back to baseline. So the definition flexibility, how far can I go? How far can I bend? And The definition of strength, how much force can I resist? Let's apply these same concepts to social situations. Flexibility and strength are really important ingredients or building blocks for physical movement, as well as in social interaction with other people or with the world, with systems, but also even with ourselves. However, too much and not enough of the other creates a really imbalanced, compromised resilience, compromised experience of resilience. It's really helpful to be flexible when working with other people in this negotiation of social dynamics, right? The negotiation of give and take. Okay. I'll give a little bit. I'll be flexible. I'll give, I'll give a little bit because it's important right now in our relationship, whatever the nature of the relationship is at work, at home, with kids, with, ex- with friends, with community members, or um, folks at your church or, wherever you are yes i'll give a little i see this is important to you and it's it's okay i i can i can bend i can bend a little but bending all the way all the time when you fold forward farther than you can go with your body when you're stretching you can injure yourself you can tear a muscle you can strain a muscle you can do all kinds of more extreme things too but we'll just leave it simple at that when you bend, reflex too much in relationships or farther than you have the capacity to go, then there's similar risk of injury to yourself and possibly to the relationship too. You want to go just far enough, but not too far that it becomes a bit scary, painful, or dangerous. Similarly, strength is also important in social interactions, but too much creates a rigidity and that's often unhelpful and painful in social interactions too, right? The inability to budge at all or just extreme resistance, perhaps to somebody else's needs, tends to keep relationships stuck and not moving forward in a flow, right? In this constant flow of give and take, give and take, give and take. However, in relationships, right? So this sort of give and take is this mobility, this fluidity of being able to sort of initiate and move through the, the different parts of the negotiation. But you have to start from this baseline of stability, right? How can you have trust in your negotiation if you're not starting from trust to begin with? If you don't trust that somebody is going to be able to receive your needs, you might actually be much more inclined to be very strong and highly resistant. If you don't believe that it will be okay to state what your needs are, and have things be okay, then you might be inclined to bend really far. Okay, we'll do what you want. Okay, whatever, we'll do what you want. Okay, we'll do what you want. Right? So there's there's this flow, this interplay of give and take, but there has to be this foundational, very stable baseline from where you're starting and then assuming, right? Because it can get kind of like, whoa, like very like, what? where are we going in this negotiation? There has to be a trust that you'll return back to that stable baseline of trust. We're gonna find a resolution here. We're gonna work it out. Okay, let's put this into place. We're gonna try it out. If it doesn't quite work, we're gonna revisit this. Right, that's that's one, one possible example of what trust can look like at the end of a negotiation, a social interactive negotiation. Um. Right? So flexibility and strength in body is really important in influencing the very complex, nuanced, whole body kinesthetic movement through... in an in interaction that's not just 50 pushups, but that's very functional. That's like getting up out of your chair. It's not just 50 squats, it's actually getting up out of your chair and being able to, to move your body to the bathroom, move your body to your car, up the stairs, whatever it is, right? So it's not just about doing 50 squats or 50 push-ups. it's how those influence your ability to do much more complex movements or a much more resilient way of being in the physical world. Similarly, flexibility and strength in relationships, and even with yourself, the ability to be kind and compassionate, to bend to what a part of you might want, what might need, or to resist something that's not resist yourself, but to honor the resistance that's within you that arises in relation to something else that's happening in the world or, right? This complex, um, sorry, that these things inform, these are ingredients that inform the complex and nuanced relational and emotional interactions with self, with inner world, and with others, with outer world. And that's really what we ultimately focused on in moving into freedom and what we'll be focusing on in this Finding My Freedom membership. Embodied resilience influences and improves relational and emotional resilience. And so for the month of January, the focus is specifically on stability and mobility, using body, exploring what does stability and mobility feel like in my body. Sort of assessing where there's stuckness, where, where there's too much strength, where there's um, maybe even like numbness, like too much flexibility or not enough st- structure, a bending too far, so to speak. Um, and uh, and so that brings me to talking about one of Thomas Hannah's right, in Hannah Somatics. That was one of the two main tools that we used in um, moving into freedom, Hannah Somatics and Gene um, Genlin's focusing. So returning to talk specifically about somatics, uh, one of the central themes of Thomas Hannah's work is what he calls sensory motor, motor amnesia or SMA for short, right? So he considers in the trauma literature, um, there's a discussion of a cutting off between brain and body, a cutting off. And he calls it, he doesn't call it a cutting off, he calls it an amnesia, which implies that there was a remembrance before there was a forgetting. Right. And so he sort of talks about how like when we're born and when we're when we're new and fresh in the world as babies, we have this knowing, we have this inherent remembering and connection between all the parts of ourselves. We are one integrated, sweet, wonderful being. But then unfortunately, as we mature and as we interact with other people around us and as we interact with the world, then we have painful experiences that influence the way that we physically move our bodies or physically respond to the environment. And then there's this gradual forgetting, or it could be a a very overt, um, acute forgetting, excuse me, um, a very quick forgetting, or a very gradual forgetting of this connection. And one of the things that I really love about talking about this kind of forgetting in relation to all of the other trauma literature that in neuroscience literature that talks about the connection between brain, body and nervous system is that in order to move through the process of healing or integrating the process and the question becomes, can I help my body remember how to respond so that my whole being can do the same? Can I help my body remember how to respond so that my whole being can do the same? And this is the essence of the theme for all the work that we do, but specifically informing January's theme. This remembering how to respond while looking specifically at what is the experience of mobility and stability in my body? What is the experience of baseline, ability to initiate a response, to carry out the response, to bring the response to a completion and return back to baseline? Now, if we all have unhealed trauma, the expectation is, is really not so smooth. There are going to be places we experience a hiccup or experience it's not quite as smooth as that. That's to be expected. But that when you can really break it down into this very granular phased stage or phased approach to to looking, to feeling, to experiencing, then it can become much easier to work with. Oh, it's this part I notice that where the trouble is. What's going on there, right? And, the, and then it provides a framework for being able to approach, not to force the change, but to approach and explore. What is it that's needed here? Is it that, do I feel safe, right? Oh, is stability. Okay, that me- that needs my attention feeling stable, feeling safe. I'm afraid to fully let go. I'm I'm afraid to be fully flexible because I just don't feel so safe, right? That gives a something to, to grab onto, to chew on it, provides a framework, a container for working. And that's what we're aiming for, just slowing it down so that the working with isn't overwhelming. So that there can be just little steps, little steps building off of whatever came next. I really look forward to hearing how this kind of exploration goes for you in the community over the next month. I'll see you there.